Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. A call to confession comes from Proverbs 25, verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. This proverb states a simple truth, that the man who bears false witness is like instruments of warfare. The proverb serves as a justification for the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Liars use words to bruise like clubs, to wound like swords, or to pierce to the heart like arrows. As a proverb, this fact is a warning to us to avoid false witnesses and to hold them accountable. The playground logic of sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me is false. We live in a culture that has bought into that lie, though. People don't think before they talk, and they justify falsehoods as no big deal. It's just words. Admission of guilt and retraction is belittled. Did you ever read the retractions or the clarifications in the newspaper? They show up several days later, four or five pages in, in the small print. And because we have refused to demand integrity and honesty in society, along and that combined with our modern technologies, our ability to proliferate words, we have a proliferation of falsehood and lies. Anybody with an opinion on anything is welcome to post it up on the internet, on Facebook or a blog or Twitter. And to be sure, there are people who love to swing verbal clubs and shoot verbal arrows. And the sad thing is that even though our culture buys into the lie that words will never hurt me, these violent words, these violent actions often hit their mark because the lie is not true, and God's word is true. Slander and gossip destroy reputations. They destroy friendships, businesses, communities, and lives. Some of these effects are grotesque and obvious. There are young people who have been so destroyed by words that in despair they commit suicide. Most of it is far less obvious, but even so, it still destroys the peace and health of our culture. We, as wise Christians, as wise believers, the first thing we are called to do is to recognize this as destructive and evil, and to repent and refrain from participating in it. God tells us very clearly in Scripture that he hates lying tongues, 
false witnesses and those who sow discord. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. He also tells us that false witnesses will not go unpunished. Proverbs 19, verses 5 and 9. And ultimately, false witnesses will perish. Proverbs 21, verse 28. So take these scriptural warnings to heart. The first thing we need to do is recognize and repent of these sins. The next thing we need to do is we need to proclaim the gospel. Where lying words destroy, God's truth restores. Where slander wounds, God's word binds and heals. And where bitter words pierce hearts, the gospel gives life to the dead. And the gospel is this. Jesus died for your sins if you will repent and believe on him. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you are willing and able, please kneel. Psalm 23. And it is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And it's famous because we see it and we read it all the time. It's comforting and encouraging. So it's read and recited frequently at times of great trial in our lives, at funerals, and at times of loss and suffering. Or times of hurt and pain. We turn to, turn to Psalm 23 for peace, for comfort, and for strength. In fact, these are the occasions when even the world will listen to Scripture. And this is what they frequently hear. We also read and recite and memorize this psalm because it is beautiful. It's poetry. It's glorious. It reminds us of God's closeness to us and His interest in our lives and His provision for us. So we see Psalm 23 used at weddings and feasts and momentous occasions, times of rejoicing and times of great change. And this is for good reason, because the Shepherd Psalm is a short and concise and personal profession of faith. Faith that God is our God and He's intimate with us. And His closeness equates to safety and peace and blessing and victory and eternal life in the midst of a dark world. So as we turn to the text, the first thing I want to point out is that this psalm is very intimate. That's not necessarily what jumps out at us or what we think of when we think of Psalm 23. When we think of Psalm 23, we think of a shepherd. We think of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But David writes this psalm from personal experience of God's shepherding. And David was a shepherd and he knew how close that relationship was between his sheep and the shepherd. David is the man after God's own heart. 
And one thing that's very clear about this is that David sees himself as, a, as extremely close to God. Every verse of the 23rd Psalm has God and me in it. Every verse talks about me and God. What's God, what God's doing and what I'm doing. How we're responding to each other. How we have relationship with each other. Every verse is about our close relationship with Him. The metaphor shifts from shepherd, verses 1 through 4, to host or Lord in verses 5 and 6. But every verse is about God's relationship with us. Also, we again see the chiastic structure of this psalm, which gives us the heart of the psalm in verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You, you get that? We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, a dangerous and scary place. But God is with us. His intimacy, He's there. And because He's there, we need not fear. Because we have intimacy and closeness with God, because God is Emmanuel. God with us. We need to fear no evil. And this boldness and confidence is the fruit of the nature of God's relationship with us. He's my shepherd and I trust in him. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Our intimacy with God starts there. He defines the relationship. He is my shepherd, and I believe that. Because he's my shepherd, I will not want. And because of this relationship, God provides for us. Verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. These are the needs that sheep have. God gives us what we need, food and drink, the means for life and health. He provides richly for us. And a necessary part of that provision is redemption and direction. Verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now in this verse and the next, the next verse, we see in particular this double meaning that David fills this psalm with. So... There's, there's double meaning in this. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For sheep, this would point to the refreshing or the reviving of their spirits. As they, the sheep would, can get worked up. They, 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 can, they can get frantic. And sheep are known to do that. But the shepherd calms them and assures them. He restores their souls. And it also points to the shepherd's leading them. He guides them down right paths, down safe paths. And this, the second meaning, the double meaning part here is for men, for me, he restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. It means that God makes things right with me. When I have turned from him, he calls me back and provides redemption in Jesus Christ. Likewise, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. These are the safe paths, the ways that 
we might walk in wisdom and grace, secure from danger. And that's what the next verse is concerned with, the heart of the, of the song. The perfect, that perfect intimacy casts out fear of danger. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the wildernesses of Israel, there are valleys and gullies that are barren. Like they call them wadis, and it's where the, the, the rains would come and, and, and wash it out, and it would leave a, a, a gully there. And many of these would have caves on the sides, and those would, might be dens of wild beasts. And they were dangerous places to travel in the wilderness, because they weren't guarded, they were out, you're out in the wilderness, you weren't in the middle of civilization. And they were dangerous for both man and sheep, for, for the, the shepherd and his flock. Man and beast was, was at danger because of these dangerous places. Yet it would occasionally be necessary to travel through these, these paths, these, these dark valleys of the valley of the shadow of death is, is a picture of that. The sheep with the shepherd are safe there, but without the shepherd, the sheep are in grave danger. And David claims for himself fearlessness as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, which is life here on the earth. He claims fearlessness because God is his shepherd. He believes that God loves him. He knows that God is close to him. He knows that God, God will deliver him from Goliath the way that God delivered him from the bear and the lion. God is with David. And because God is with David, he walks in dangerous places. And he knows that God is with him. And he's safe in God's hands. The end of verse 4 brings up the tools of the shepherd's trade. And indirectly it recalls the restoration and leading of verse 3. So it's coming, we're coming back from our chiasm now. But the end of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod was... A, was, was the staff of the shepherd was the tool of the shepherd, the shepherd's crook, if you will. It was a, a long stick, long, stout, hardy stick. And he would, use, he would use the rod to protect the sheep from danger. And the staff he would use to lead the sheep down the right paths. So he'd use the rod to beat off the enemies, and he would use the, the staff to, to guide the sheep this way, not that way. For men, the rod of God defends us. The Lord crushes our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. God's rod breaks them down. The fact that our own flesh is one of our enemies means that God's rod works both outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly towards the devil and the world, and inwardly the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God's staff for men, that's his rod. God, God punishes our sin. He, he, he causes us, he brings discipline to us, and he, he delivers us from enemies. And then his staff for men is his guidance of our souls. 
He gives us wisdom. He gives us His Spirit. He writes His law on, on our hearts by means of His Spirit. And the text of Scripture guides us in the paths of righteousness. It keeps us on safe paths. And, and because of these things, because of His rod, and because of His staff, we are comforted. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And in this comfort, God richly provides for us. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Here the metaphor switches to the, a host or a, a lord. In the, in the Eastern uh, societies, the, the host, when he set a, prepared a table for his guest, he took ownership for the protection of his guest. And hospitality was a big deal in Eastern cultures because of this. It's, it's, it's about intimacy. It's about fellowship. It's about identification, identifying with each other. So we've, we, he leaves the, the metaphor of shepherd and sheep and moves to a host. And, and this is obvious because sheep don't use tables, they don't put oil on their heads, and they don't have cups. So, so the metaphor switches, but the, this is the fulfillment of the provision that's anticipated back in verse 2. It, it, this is God leading us beside uh, quiet waters and bringing us to green pastures. God banquets us well. He does it here on the earth, in the midst of enemies, in the midst of detractors, in the, in the midst of evil. He prepares a table for us. He anoints our heads and he fills our cups. So because he's our close and intimate God, we eat and are satisfied. And there's nothing that our enemies can do to take the feast from us. God has given it to us, and it is ours. We're under his protection. We're under his blessing. And thus he's prepared for us a party. That's what the anointing of the head with oil is all about. It was preparing for a feast. It was, it was getting all dressed up for a, for a party, rejoicing in excess, an overflowing cup. Access and rejoicing are God's means of blessing his people. This should call to mind for us the doxology of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Starting at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So Paul's praying that they would be blessed according to the riches of Christ's glory. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. There's no lack of exuberance or overabundance in God's generosity and goodness and kindness that he pours out on us. It surpasses what we can even imagine, what we can even think. The glory and the grace and the goodness that God pours out on us. We don't need to fear because that's the God who loved us and chose us out of the world and provides for us in this astonishing way and the conclusion of the psalm extends this grace to all eternity verse 6 surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever it cannot be taken away from you. The intimacy that God gives to you, you it, it cannot be taken away from you. Nothing can touch it. You are chosen. You are His. You belong to Him. He's going to provide for you. You can trust Him, and you do not need to fear any evil. This brings us to application. And first we see that we need to trust God's goodness and mercy. We need to trust in God's goodness and mercy. God has established a relationship with us. As we were reading in our, our text this morning in, in the Bible readings, He's redeemed us from the wicked shepherds who were taking advantage of the flock. Now God is our shepherd. Jesus tells us that He is the good shepherd in John 10, as we read also. We are in close and intimate relationship with our God because of this. God's given us His Son. He's bestowed upon us His Word. And He's generously poured out His Spirit upon us. We do well to confess Psalm 23. We do well to read it, to meditate on it, to remember it, and to memorize it. God is pleased when we confess our relationship to Him. And especially so in times of grief and great trial and distress. Times of great change or great moment. God loves to hear us confess in these important times of our lives how true this relationship is. How foundational this relationship is that God is my shepherd eternally and forever I will trust in him in the midst of this pain in the midst of this hurt in the midst of this loss in reciting this psalm we acknowledge his claim on us and our claim on him in speaking these words we are encouraged and reminded of our covenant with him and the eternal peace and goodness and mercy that He gives to us freely. Now once we claim our shepherd's blessings, we must enter into them with a good will. 
This means we must eat boldly, drink joyfully, and rejoice powerfully. Our God promises and gives to us very good gifts. Very good gifts. He provides bountifully, so we are called then to be thankful. Acknowledge and appreciate His generosity. Recognize it. Rejoice in it. And then eat, eat, eat boldly. God sets us a table for us in the midst of our enemies. So here's a feast. Enjoy it. Don't be shy about it. Don't be shy about eating and drinking the food that God gives you. And so what is food? It's an important question to ask. What am I talking about here? First and foremost, Jesus is food. He's the Passover lamb. He was laid in the manger. He was born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. He claims to be the bread of heaven. And he commands us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So eat Jesus. Participate in communion. We're sacramentally united to Christ and his body in this covenant meal. His life is given to us in means of bread and wine as we participate in faith. When we confess and believe as we eat and as we drink, we participate in Christ. We, we are joined to his body in covenant, in sacramental covenant. Also, regularly feed on his word. Jesus is the word. And he reveals himself to us in his word, the Bible. So read your Bibles. Graze on the verdant pastures of scripture. Satisfy your souls with his wisdom and knowledge. Drink deeply from the wells of life and understanding found in your scriptures. There's, these are spiritual realities and thus greater realities. And that's why first we eat Jesus. That's what food is. But there are shadows of Christ in our world. And therefore we're called to participate in those too. Participate in the secondary food that God gives with gratitude also. See Jesus' blessings in your jobs and homes and families. See Jesus in those things. Eat your bread and drink your wine in exuberant joy. It's a gift from God. Anoint your head. Put your party clothes on. And proclaim God's praise for his goodness to you. Embrace the fellowship of the saints and the community of holiness that God puts you in. Your people, your church, your fellowship, your community. Embrace them. Love them. Kiss your wife. Love your husband. Hug your children. Embrace your parents. Love them. Love your neighbor. Pour yourself out for those around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. This kind of boldness and obedient gratitude is the means that God uses to overcome our enemies. 
It heats coals of burning fire on their heads as they see us expressing the gratitude that Paul tells us they know they owe, but refuse to give. Our faithfulness and obedience and gratitude furthers the gospel. So after we confess, and after we eat and rejoice in gratitude, after we participate in this intimate and joyful relationship with God, we find comfort in His correction and guidance. So accept His correction. Seek His guidance and know His peace. Because God does have peace for us. He's provided a way for us to come into His presence. Jesus paid for your sins and my sins on the cross. He provided a way for you and I to meet God. He's atoned for our sins. He's bought us with a price. And we belong to Him, just like the sheep belong to the shepherd. Now this belonging means that we must humble ourselves to His discipline. Sheep aren't known for being particularly wise. Sometimes the rod must be used to prevent us from hurting ourselves. And it's always better to learn wisdom by willing submission to God's revealed will, following the paths clearly laid out for us in Scripture. But regardless of whether we're experiencing God's rod or His staff, we belong to Him. We are His. And we can know His comfort in both His rod and His staff. There's comfort for us in submitting to Him, to His correction, and submitting to His faithful leadership. And this has the added benefit of glorifying Him. Uh, we do this for His name's sake, according to verse 3. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So, because we submit to Him, because we are sanctified in Him, and we become holy, we glorify Him. And that gives us boldness. Despite overwhelming odds and horrific evil. Because we know that we are in His good grace. We know we are His because we see His rod and His staff in our lives, sanctifying us. And we can be bold. We do not need to fear in the face of evil. Notice how David doesn't minimize evil. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. Like I said last week, when we were talking about prayer. He identifies it. He says, no, no, look, I am going to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a metaphor for every wickedness and evil, every wicked and evil thing out there. And he clearly identifies it. I will fear no evil. There's no evil that I need to fear. Evil's great. The valley of, shadow, of the shadow of death is, is, is hard. It's difficult. It hurts. 
It's a bad place. But I can go through that. I can go through suffering. I can go through pain. I can go through loss. Because I know that God is with me. And he will bring me out the other side of it. It's despite evil that David fears not. Because God is on his side. And Paul reminds us of this glorious truth in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the reason that Psalm 23 is recited at funerals. Death can't separate us from God's love. This is the reason we read Psalm 23 to people who are in despair. To people who are about to die. God will take you through this valley. And there's life on the other side of it. Because in Easter season, God is revealed to us as the God who overcame death. And he pours out his love on us with true intimate and powerful grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. As we heard in our message today, Jesus Christ is our food. And we are commanded to eat and drink boldly because God's promises are great and they are true. This meal is one of the many means and one of the primary means where God's intimacy is communicated to us. His promise is for you and for me. And as surely as you eat and drink, Believing and remembering Jesus' salvation accomplished on your behalf in faith, all this is yours. And you do not need to fear any evil, but rejoice and give thanks and praise God. Christ's body, broken for us, let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K. -I -R -K 
M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.